0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs.
1: Thank you. Um, so, we really like the metaphor at the end of having the half a barrel of oil would we sell it to our
0: neighbors
2: or... Uh, would we keep it and use it judiciously while we put together our, our little windows and our solar panels? We'd like to know what your take is on changing changing the message, changing it from the economics, short-term gain, to the issue of what is our long-term planning cabinet. Boy well, that's, that's a big
3: question but I think... You're right. That's, what we need to have is that discussion about what is our long-term plan. That seems to be what, what's missing. Um, you know, I think in Alberta, we've had a pattern, and we're discussing at our table not only in the oil industry, but in but in the forest industry when I, that I was involved in in the 1980s. Uh, we allocate the resource, and then we plan. And it really seems that what we should be doing is the other way around. Should we should be planning. And then you allocate the resource. Um, you, you know, it, obviously I'm coming from sort of the green side of the spectrum here, but um, I did have a colleague who worked at one of the bigger law firms in, in, uh, in Calgary. He's an international oil lawyer. He runs around the world putting together oil deals for, for uh, places like Qatar and Kuwait. And, uh, but even he's you know, somebody put firmly within the industry and he says to me, you know, we've got 60 years. We've got 60 years to figure this out. And then beyond that, we have to be using our non-renewable oil resources only for the essential things. So uh, that's the kind of time frame. How do we do that? Boy, I, I don't know. I think it's like most things. It's a political question. Terry uh, Chillington. Uh, Barry, thank you for being here uh, under
4: the circumstances and for a wonderful presentation. Um, we had quite a bit of wondering about this at our table. I didn't hear you address it, haven't heard anybody else address it. Uh, to what extent uh, did Enbridge explore other routes to the Pacific? And was this route chosen because it was the shortest distance and therefore the most economic of the build? Or, or did they look at um, other passages and other Pacific ports that, um, that were safer? I'm curious about if they have a plan B and C in terms of routes. Uh, they, when they started out, they did consider other ports. I know they considered Prince Rupert. I'm going a bit by memory here. I
3: think there was a couple other locations on the coast. Um, I, I don't think they considered going down sort of the trans-mountain routes to Vancouver, but I know for sure they also considered Prince Rupert. Um, they very quickly, very quickly, really on, judging from the documents, eliminated other routes. Uh, they, they, knew, they knew their starting point in Bruderham. they the, they'd chosen Kitimat as their port. Uh, within that, uh, you know, they have looked at a number of different routes between those two points. I think that just before Christmas they, uh, they put out route selection B, which I guess makes it number 23 or 24 that they've, that of their amendments. So they're constantly sort of jumping the route, but it's pretty much in a corridor now that's about a kilometer wide from Bruderheim to, uh, that have I, I think, to be fair to them, I think the primary selection criteria was engineering, that this was in terms of of dirt to be moved and slopes and things they had to meet that this was the route that met that uh, most. Um, there was a lot of concern about, you know, some people said they should have gone to Prince River, is it existing, uh, it was more of an open water court, but then you've got a lot of uh, uh, route along, I believe it's the Skeena River there, and there was a lot of local concern about going that way, so... They did look at a variety of roots, but I think fairly early on, you know, two or three years ago, they were pretty locked into rootier
5: hunting that. Good night. Hi, good uh, afternoon, good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Joseph, great job. A lot of the intestinal fortitude did come here to talk to us, and I really appreciate you. your 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 presentation is excellent. Uh, my question is, sorry, I have a couple of actually a couple of observations regarding the. Uh, uh, the, uh, you may not be able to answer but the selection criteria for the panel members for the, uh, the Enridge uh, public hearings. The other one is just an observation. If you want to make an observation, you don't have to. Uh, what I want you to uh, kind of address is the, the XL pipeline regarding the selection of the route. I think that kind of follows up to the previous question. Why did they select what they did? Well, they knew full well that. Going through that very sensitive area was totally unacceptable. Just, just a comment to your personal opinion, and uh, I guess that's really if you can answer the the, the uh, judges might. And
3: will yeah. maybe start with the latter. They You said XL. Did you mean Northern Gateway? Why that? No, I meant yeah, I meant to do what you asked. I'm the what U.S. U.S. Okay, so XL. Um, the purpose there is one to get oil in in more oil into the U.S., but there's, there's another issue there, and, and right now there's a number of pipelines uh, that carry both U.S. oil and Canadian oil uh, Canadian oil into the U.S., and then oil from the northern U.S. states. And some of you may be familiar with the Bakken play like North Dakota, which is now putting out a lot more oil. Not all flows right now, or, or most of it flows into an a, a oil hub at, at Cushing, Oklahoma. And, and the problem is there's not enough pipelines, so a lot of oil flows in there, there's not enough pipeline capacity to move that oil down to the Gulf Coast. And that's a lot of the reason for the Keystone XL, uh, was that it's not just to get more oil down to Cushing, but there's it, it a second leg to get it down to, the, down to the Gulf Coast. So that's sort of what's behind Keystone XL. Now, uh, is sort of the root selection problem, that I think the initial big problem was they went ac- across the Nebraska, I believe it's called the Nebraska Sandhills, and the Ogallala Aquifer, which is a, a main groundwater supply for, for Midwest U.S., and that's where uh, Trans Canada took a lot of heat for having selected that route. Now, they've now juggled it out so it's not so much over the Sandhills, and, uh, and they now have Nebraska, Nebraska on side. They're still waiting, of course, to get the U.S. federal government on side on that. In terms of selection of the panel, uh, I should just tell you who they are. Uh, uh, Sheila Leggett uh, was formerly with the Alberta Natural Resources Conservation Board. She's now a permanent panel member with the National Energy Board. She has kind of a science biology background. The, the second member is Ken Bateman, who is a, a, came out of the Calgary oil, you know, it, it, he's a lawyer, came out of the Calgary oil picture, also a permanent member of the National Energy Board. And then the, the third member, who was appointed by the Minister of Environment is Hans Matthew, who is a First Nations person from Ontario, with uh, who was involved in, in mining uh, in Ontario. So that's the panel. Uh, um, frankly, I think they're all very well qualified to be there. I, don't, I, don't think I have nothing negative to
1: say about the panel members. Uh, on Trevor Page, you've answered part of my question, which the speaker said he wouldn't ask. <laughs> but anyway... Um, Who selected the panel? Are they appointed? I presume they're appointed, and are they appointed by the federal government? And my question deals with the process of the hearings. I mean, if there is a lot, an overwhelming amount of protests raised about environmental risks, does the panel just listen to those and say, well, we've heard you out, but it's in the national interest to go ahead anyway? What is the process? Okay.
3: Uh, in terms of appointment, uh, National Energy Board has permanent members of the board, and I, I'm going a bit by memory, I think there's about eight to ten of them, and they are appointed from within the board uh, to the various panels, so some are appointed for the current Line 9 hearings on so they're, they're permanent members that are appointed from within the board. Their original appointment to the board would have been by the the minister of natural resources, federal minister of natural resources. Uh, Mr. Matthews is not a permanent member of any board. He but he was selected by the the minister of the federal minister of the environment. So that's the selection selection process. I'm sure
1: you have to remind me of your second question. Then. Yeah. So so what is the process if there are a lot of overwhelming. Yes protests on environmental grounds uh, against the pipeline proceeding, does the panel then just say, well, thank you for your protests, we've listened to what you've had to say, but it's in the national interest to proceed anyway? Yeah. Uh, the, the test that the panel has to make is, is this pipeline,
3: and the, the phrase that's used in the act is, is this pub- pipeline in the public interest? And what they are required to do is to weigh the benefits Versus the costs or or risks associated with the pipeline. And they are to make that decision. But they can only make that decision based on the evidence that is before them in the hearings. So that is the evidence that Enbridge has put before them. It's evidence that that clients like mine have put before them, which is primarily scientific, technological uh, evidence. As I said, they are also hearing from 4,000 individuals who, who can? Who can? What they're permitted to do is to say how the pipeline will impact them. So that's what the panel has to make that decision: Is it in the public interest? Do the benefits outweigh the risks, or do the risks outweigh the benefits, based on the evidence before them? So the, the protests that are going on, so to speak, outside of the hearings on the street, uh, do not influence the panel. They will not consider that.
1: Thank
4: you. Ivery Lorenzich. To what degree will the Hartford government's changes to Federal Fisheries Act, Navigable Waters Act, and Endangered Species Act facilitate Gateway by reducing or eliminating environmental standards?
3: Yeah. Well, uh, uh, as I mentioned, on the Navigable Water Protection Act, that uh, definitely has reduced. Uh, actually, I should put the question back to you, Lauren, on the Fisheries Act impact. You probably have more knowledge of that than, than I do. But indeed, uh, there, there has been some changes in the language of the Fisheries Act, uh, particularly around habitat destruction, that that uh, may make it easier for, uh, for Enbridge to get the permits that they need for this. The Species at Risk Act has not as yet been modified, but we expect it might be soon. We know... Um, And I believe, from uh, again going back from memory here, I believe it's from about the time the Enbridge application was first uh, um, first put in place, which was 2008, until uh, late 2012, that Enbridge had lobbied the federal government 145 times, Um, and also Cap, uh, Canadian oil producers, has been lobbying extensively, and um, you know. I think it's pretty fair to say that the changes that we've seen to these environmental protection laws, both in the spring and fall budgets in 2012, were a result of that lobbying, with the intent of lowering the environmental hurdles that this
0: pipeline needs to get over. My name is Van Christou, Uh, I'd like to preface my remarks by thanking you, Barry, for risking coming down here today under such uh, terrible conditions. I'd like to thank you as well for a a really clear uh, picture of uh, a subject which hasn't been too clear in many of our minds of what is going on. It seems to me that that Enbridge and and the oil companies are laughing all the way to the bank that that we are considering and having these hearings the way way that they're going on, when really we're not focusing at all on whether we should be... Exporting bitumen at all? Should we not be processing bitumen before it's sent away as oil, even if it takes a little longer? uh, The oil doesn't spoil in the ground, and are we not better off to face that part of it, emphasize that part, rather than all the other details that are being considered?
3: I'll I'll start first with what uh, sort of the industry's position is. We do upgrade. Uh, some of the bitumen in Alberta, SunCord and SunCruiser will do some upgrading. There is some other upgrading, but but the vast majority of, of bitumen is being shipped out of Alberta, uh, not upgraded. So the question, you know, really being, should we be building more upgraders in Alberta, creating jobs in Alberta, and uh, and uh, and then sending a higher value product to the U.S. and Chinese markets? And uh, the industry answer is that it's too expensive to build. New upgraders in Alberta. That it's 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 more it's cheaper to modify the refineries in the U.S. and in China to accept that bitumen. So that's the industry's position. Certainly, at these hearings, uh, the Alberta Federation of Labor was very active in the evident portion of the hearings and raising just the very issue that that we should be um, we should be uh, upgrading more of this bitumen in Alberta and creating value added and jobs in Alberta by doing that. Mm-hmm. My name is Frank Todd.
2: Mr. Robinson, we, I just want to let you know that our selective committee, selection committee, is adding 1,000 by having you here, number one, and Mr. Nickerthorpe next here. I'd like to give them a hand. <laughs> yes, I, I think Andrew will be a very interesting talk next time. Now, my Andrew, I'd, I'd like to ask two little short ones. I know we're relegated to one only. One <laughs> are Albertans, the so called owners. Going to be asked about this pipeline and the others, there's another one announced today
3: again. When the owner's ever going to be asked? Well, I guess in theory, you know, the, the National Energy Board answer to that would be that you know, Albertas have been a- asked and, and could have spoke up on the, uh, on the Northern Gateway pipeline. Well, I, you know, I can tell you that um, I did some calculations, I got these numbers all from memory, but out of the 220 parties that registered as interveners, that is to oppose the Northern Gateway Pipeline. I believe less than 20 from Alberta. The rest were from, from B.C. But that speaks to the economic benefit as well. right? The economic benefit is here so you don't bite the hand that feeds
2: you. The main question is the gentleman did a beautiful job on the last question. I was going to say I do a lot of research. I know who our leader is paternally related to the oil giant, Exxon, and imperial oil. Do you think his yodel from Davos, Switzerland, when he announced that his, co- his government did not stand for any interference in research and drilling, what have you, in gas and oil, has that
3: affected this hearing and everything else? you really want to drop me at the call? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to be careful here. I believe that the panel, three people sitting there, have maintained their independence and haven't done a reasonable job of maintaining their independence. Um, You've led me into an area I wasn't going to talk about today, but I will. (laughs) Um, Some of you will be aware uh, of an organization called Ethical Oil. And last January, Ethical Oil uh, on, put out a website called Our Decision, in which they labeled a number of environmental groups, including um, Forest Ethnic Advocacy, was one of, uh, one of my clients, also my, my organization, of Justice, as foreign radicals uh, and, uh, and enemies of the state. Um, the connections between Ethical Oil and the Prime Minister's office are, are numerous, and we have mapped these out in a number of diagrams as to ex-staffers from the PMO's office now working Ethical Oil. Uh, Ezra Levant, founder of Ethical Oil, actually stepped down in Calgary uh, South riding, I think it was, to let Stephen Harper run. There's a lot of connections there. So within days of Ethical Oil calling us foreign terrorists, uh, Joe Oliver, the Minister of Natural Resources, was using the same language. Uh, this Mike Duffy in the Senate was using the same language. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. That's just that there's a lot of connections uh, with the Prime Minister's office that uh, have influenced the outside game in this, in this
5: issue. Uh, my name is Greg McCauley, and again, thank you for the, uh, the topic. Uh, you raised some very provocative uh, points, uh, maybe a point or two to think about. I want to take a look at the economic impact on Canada. If we not proceed either with this pipeline or the Keystone Pipeline, or any of the other alternatives, because I expect that no matter what the other alternatives, the environmental reaction against these would be much the same. Uh, we've got health care, we've got education, we got all the demands coming from the ador- Aboriginal groups and now the Métis and, and non- non-status. And so in some way, we've got to keep the economy of Canada proceeding to be able to afford this, or we're going to slip backwards in how, how we live. Yeah. Thank you.
3: Yeah, if I might comment on that, just just a comparison, and and I agree. I think economically, part of the problem in Canada, and for the economists out there, sort of income versus asset, we treat oil like income. So whatever oil we sell this year and the the, the royalty revenues we get from that, we treat that like, well, it's just income this year, and we use it to run our schools and our hospitals. But the problem is that income is coming from a a fixed resource that each time we do that, we're depleting. So it's it's a comparison between renting your house and keeping it in shape, which will give you an income forever, versus every renter who leaves your house takes a piece of the house with them, and eventually you have no house to rent anymore. And that's what a non-renewable resource is. And the comparison, in my mind, is best made to Norway, which has very much treated their income from oil as capital, and then they use the interest off of that to support their services. Whereas we just treat it as income, we, we, we use it up. So the question is, yes, we need it for hospitals and schools, but what do we do 60 or 80 years from now when the oil is gone to run our hospitals and our schools? And that's where I think Norway has been much smarter uh, you know, our, our in roughly the same time frame, our Heritage Fund, I think, got up at maximum to around 13 or $14 billion, And the Norway Fund got up to somewhere in the range of $700 billion. And then they used the interest off of that to fund their, their services. Again, you're drawing me a little bit more political <laughs> than I should be here. That's okay. Um, my name is Katie Lowell. Uh, very, really, really good
5: talk. Um, I guess my big question is... Uh, You talked how the panel's going to investigate how it's affected, uh, or how the pipeline's going to affect social environmental impacts, and I know we measure a lot of things in dollar amounts. I was just wondering how they're actually going to measure social, well, more more so environmental impacts uh, without just looking at dollar amounts.
3: Yes, and it's very hard to put dollar amounts. Now, some of the environmental impacts have dollar amounts, and, and this has been some of the testimony in front of the panel, in terms of particularly, as I said, salmon fishery, I uh, has an important dollar amount to a uh, tourist industry in, in northwest BC. So there are some dollar amounts you can put, but you know, what's the dollar amount you put on clean water, you know, those sorts of things. The other issue we've got going on of course is, is a lot of this territory and the resource that might be impacted, such as wildlife and fish might be impacted, it is, is is First Nations traditional territories. And, and, you know, fish and the wildlife are important for their subsistence economies, which, you know, don't again, they don't really enter the market. There's no dollar figure out, but that provides the food and, and, and lifestyle for those First Nations economies. So, yeah, it's hard to, I, I don't envy the panel having to weigh sort of hard dollars on one side versus risk to fish, risk to wildlife, risk to air quality, risk to Aboriginal
4: way of life. It's a tough job they've got, I, for sure. Gerald thank you for your speech. I enjoyed it. Actually, you just touched on that part of the question I was going to ask about the First Nations people. How long can they delay this thing? How much opposition is there from them in the number of uh, First Nations that are for or against it? And uh, do you think they can delay it for a long, long time or a short time? Thank um, you. I think there's definitely going to be some, some First Nations uh,
3: legal actions. Um, Some First Nations along the route, and and Enbridge won't identify who they are, have entered into agreements with Enbridge and therefore will not be opposing it. We'll get the financial benefit from it. Our read on the situation is that the vast majority of the First Nations across northern BC are are opposed. Now, um, in in Alberta we have treaties and and the land claims have been settled. For most of northern BC there were not treaties and the land claims are still outstanding. Um, So there's a lot of Aboriginal rights and title issues, and uh, I believe that, um, I believe it's very likely that somewhere in this process we're going to see a First Nations uh, say, not across my territory, and and bring an Aboriginal rights and title claim, and that
1: could be in the court for years. My name is Henning Mundell. I have one very short, just technical detail question, and then a question, uh, a more philosophical one. The technical detail is, where does the condensate come from to get it back, to go up to or backwards? My understanding is this is coming from offshore, from from,
3: from places like China, uh, and somewhat somewhat from the U.S. Uh, there are some uh, some, some U.S., uh, it's a petroleum product, just a very light petroleum product. Uh, so some of these will come out through California, some will come from, uh, there, there's other
1: countries around the world, even Middle East, may come from as far as the Middle East. Okay. So, my real question to uh, help support an area you've already endeavored to enter, to help further train your efforts at diplomacy. <laughs> um, supposing that the panel comes down very strongly against building the pipeline, what is your forecast that the government will? Do? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, just, you know, just to be clear that is the that is the process. All the panel makes is a report and recommendation to the Minister of Transport and Minister or Minister of Natural Resources and the Minister of Environment, and it's their decision. If they come down hard against it, obviously it makes it politically difficult for for those parties to uh, uh, to, uh, to to approve it. And, and oh, I get political, you know. I, Harper, and, uh, Prime Minister and Oliver and others really went hard after the environmental groups, you know, as I said in January through after that. But I don't know if you would have noticed, but sometime around July, the tone started to soften a bit. And that's because somebody was smart enough to look in B.C. and go, 21 conservative seats. If we prove this thing, we're going to lose them all. We're going to be back in minority government. So I think that's weighing. I think there's there's definitely politics weighing in this, and I think frankly that uh, Harper and others will weigh that when the panel of report comes out. They'll have to weigh can, I, can we afford to, because BC is you know, fairly strongly, you know, polls are showing 60% of British Columbia residents opposed to this. So Harper has to
0: risk some seats if he's going to approve this. So, thank you. My
4: name is John Kelpys. I'm a retired, uh, still involved agriculturist. I'm wondering maybe I could formulate a comment into a question uh, with reference to uh, heritage funds and comparisons with Norway's approach and so forth. Um, is it really a fair comparison? I think we could maybe use that kind of a formula, but Alberta would be vulnerable and very much at risk because Norway is a sovereign country. Um, and sometimes Alaska uses a comparison as well. And uh, they kind of go their own route as compared to some of the other states. The National Energy Program may be an example of what happens if a province in the Confederation built up a huge pot. Uh, Alberta would be very vulnerable to retain a huge, huge reserve of of uh, capital resources in that sort of a, a situation. So I don't think the comparison is, is very fair. Yeah, it, it, certainly you're getting the
3: areas of, of yeah. splits between provincial and federal uh, kind of interest in this and, and who, should, who should be getting the revenues and who should not. Um, I'm not going to pretend that these are easy questions. I think you've raised a really good issue.
1: Thank you for your presentation, it has been very interesting, lots of details. I'd like specifically to talk about, uh, to ask a question about the Douglas Channel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When I was going to university, I was going working work on the tugboats and uh, towing three barges behind, the Douglas Channel was considered as a refuge from bad weather outside, because it is a one to two mile wide channel, and the walls are going straight down. And it's very deep, and I would say that in all the places that have been, an ambassador have traveled a lot of the world. It's one of the safest parts in the west coast in the, the, the world. So why is it bad, and we, we get all this negative uh, vocabulary about it? Is that part of the bias of the <laughs> clients, or it is kind of something Yeah, it may be. Uh, no doubt there is. Uh, um, but
3: I think the issue on, on Douglas Channel, you're right. The, the wind and the waves and the, the issues are in the Hecate Strait, which is much outside of the channel. Once you're Douglas Channel, you're right. It is, it is more a protected area, so You don't get to, you certainly don't get the waves and things. Part of the problem, uh, you know, the, the issues that, that my clients pick up living oceans are, are raising, is around the very large uh, crude carriers, which are ships that are you know 600 meters long, and, and it's more around loss of power and loss of control in that channel. As you would know if you've been involved shipping in there, you know, the, the distance that a ship that size takes to stop it is considerable. So if you lose rudder control and power in that channel, pretty soon you're on one side or the other. So I think that's primarily the concern there. I don't know if that addresses what
5: you're asking. Kurt yes. this is my name. Uh, I wonder if you could speculate uh, a little bit going east do you think the pipeline going across Canada would uh, have less opposition?
3: Uh, um, we rep- Edbridge, as I said, has proposed to reverse the pipeline from Sarnia to Portland, Maine. Uh, they're doing it in three steps. Uh, Earlier in 2000, 2012, in the spring, they applied to the, uh, the NEB and they got approval to reverse the line from Sarnia to Hamilton, Ontario. And we represented um, some the groups in Ontario who don't want bitumen traveling through that part of the pipeline. Uh, it was approved, but it was funny, it was approved, and Enbridge specifically said, this will not be it. this will not be bitumen, this will not be it. well, Sands Oil, this will be the no more.
4: Well, they now apply, now an
3: application is from the board for reversal from Hamilton to Montreal, so now we get it, now we get it that far. Um, and, but now they're not as they're not saying so much that it's not going to be well, it's That's not going to be bitumen, which is funny because they're going to have to go back and reapprove 9A, to the first part of the line, because they said that wasn't bitumen, But obviously, to get bitumen in the second part is coming. The first time. So we're now we're sort of waiting for the third shoe to drop, which will be Montreal Department of Maine. And uh, I can t- tell you, we've already been contacted by groups in the U.S. in, in, in New Hampshire and Vermont. We don't want that pipeline carrying fish through their, through
1: their area. So there will be
0: opposition.
4: We've had a great set of questions today, and um, that reflects the interest there is on the subject, matter, Barry. Um, This group is very grateful for the trouble you had in coming down here today. And we learned a lot. That was one of the real benefits of today. So that means our
0: See you next week.